Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of La Zebra. As always, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And before we get into it, I want to introduce our next guest, Dr. Rahul Kamat. Welcome to the show, man. Hey there. Thanks for having me. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, would, I guess now that I think about it, I've never really thought about how I say your last name, Kamat. It's it's Gamath, actually. But like, uh. honestly, I, I mean, and... <laughs> It doesn't really matter to me. It's yeah, just yeah, a name. Yeah. So you and I are co-fellows. Yes. Or were co-fellows. We we did our pulmonary critical care fellowship at Tulane um, Medical Center, Tulane Hospital. It's not there anymore. Rest uh, in peace. Rest in peace to, to old TMC. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Um, so uh, you and I did fellowship together. And prior to that, I did my residency at LSU mm -hmm. in internal medicine and pediatrics. It was a dual residency. And prior to that, um, I did medical school abroad at uh, St. George's University. And I did my clinical years in New York City, uh, which was a great experience. Uh, I'm originally from Chicago, mm -hmm. and uh, my parents are from India. I was born in Chicago, uh, and, they, and they moved to the United States in, the, in basically the 70s and 80s. Are they... Are they are any of your parents physicians? Oh, God. I mean, I, I'm a, a walking stereotype in this respect because <laughs> my mom is a doctor. My brother's a doctor. All my aunts are doctors. I have lots of cousins that are doctors. I mean, it's a, you know, sometimes stereotypes have some truth in them. And uh, I'm the reason for that in this situation. Do you feel like you, you had to be a doctor? No, not particularly. I don't think my mom even wanted me to be one. Uh, but I mean... Sometimes there's a calling, and, and then after that, you end up doing it. <laughs> what was your calling? <laughs> I don't really know what my calling was. Uh, I think sometimes I didn't like the idea of, like, you know, other, other like, specialty fields. I'm not a researcher, so I didn't really want to get a PhD in anything. You can always get an MBA, or you can go to law school and things like that. But uh, And I, I do like talking, but uh, I don't know. I just felt like, you know... Sometimes there, you know, I just didn't feel like there was any fulfillment from those fields. Although I bet there is, I don't, you know, it's just, you know, when you think about it, it's just, and you know, when, when you've been around medicine for so long, it just kind of seems like an obvious thing. How, how, how young were you when you first thought about, um, man, I'm going to go to medical school. I'm going to be a doctor. Cause a part of me certainly was, I, I, res I, I, I knew I was going to be a doctor from a very young age, mm -hmm. but there's a part of me that wanted to rebel against that. Mm -hmm. um, did you have something similar to that? Oh, yeah. I, I definitely think so. Uh, I'm pretty sure I rebelled against it until my teens. And yeah, then yeah. after that, I said, oh, yeah, sure, let me do this. And then in college, I just kind of, I don't know, I was just lazy. I didn't, <laughs> you know, and I thought it didn't really matter, you know, what I did. And, you know, I think overall... After college, I decided, oh, yeah, well, this was your goal, and you know, you've kind of gone astray. Time to get back on track. I've definitely had ups and downs yeah, throughout yeah, the yeah, whole process. Yeah, yeah. St. George's, that's a Caribbean medical school. That's, I, I went to a Caribbean medical school. I went mm -hmm. to St. Matthew's. Um, St. George's is on... Um, Grenada. Grenada. Mm -hmm. Grenada, that's right. What was that experience like? It was good. 
Um, I did one of their programs where you spend a year in England and then you spend a year in Grenada. Uh, and then after that, you do your clinical years in New York City. I didn't know. I didn't know they had a year in England. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, honestly, I don't know. I think they still do it, but I'm not absolutely sure. It was called the Global Scholars Program mm. and it was fun. I got to spend a year in Newcastle. I got to go to a lot of uh, Newcastle United games. And uh, then after that, I spent a year in Grenada, yeah, which yeah, was yeah. just a complete different experience. And then I moved to New York City. How is it, how is it a different experience to, well, to Chicago, Newcastle? How is Grenada that different? Oh, I mean, well, it wasn't different for me. It reminded me a lot like uh, every summer of my life, my parents made me go back to India. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it reminded me very much of that. Gotcha, gotcha. One time my parents came to visit and uh, they said to each other, oh, yeah, this is just like Goa, like, which is where my family is from. And it was funny because I thought, yeah, I feel the same way. <laughs> did you ever did you ever do any sort of schooling in India? I know a lot of. Um, no. Oh, no, never, no. never. So you, you only ever went for like vacation or yeah. just to see family. Like a month or two every single summer of my life until 17 or 18. When's the last time you went back? 17 or 18. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Any reason for that? Other than just being in school the entire time, school and training. I would say school and training definitely play into it, mm -hmm. um, but I don't have much of an excuse now. Uh, more recently, I've been taking kind of like longer vacations, two, two and a half weeks. Mm -hmm. And so like, because there is like this like 18 hour journey to get there and then 18 hours to come back. So it's not something that you go to for like a few days. Right, you really right. want kind of like a long vacation. But I don't really think I have an excuse now. And I think I, I want to go back, but it's just a, you know, it's easier said than done. I, there's so many places I want to travel and visit. And so because of that, I keep on thinking to myself, well, you've been to India like 15, 18 <laughs> times. So you might as well put that one on the back burner. Is it, is it, uh, you still have a lot of family, I'm sure, back home. Yeah, most of my family is still in India. Gotcha. Um, I have some cousins that live in the United States now mm -hmm. and a cousin that lives in Canada. And then otherwise, uh, it's just basically my parents and my brother. And your brother, who is also a physician, it's just the two of y'all, y'all? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And he's older or younger brother? He's older. The older brother? Yes. You don't strike me as a younger brother. I mean, <laughs> you're not wrong. People, people say that sometimes. Uh, How much older? Like a little bit under two years. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I think we're very close in that, in like the age range. Mm -hmm. So because of that, like it's, it's kind of like a, like a head, like, you know, like a heads or tails kind of situation as to who's, the, who's older and who's younger. Um, we were only a, a year apart in school, mm -hmm. like even though we're almost two years apart in age. Mm -hmm. And so from Grenada, you went to LSU for med-peds. Yes. Why med-peds? You know, I, I wanted to, you know, I guess, uh, I know this is horrible to say, uh, but med-peds sometimes is a field where people that don't really know what they want to do kind of like figure themselves out mm. um, in some respects. I, I love internal medicine and I love pediatrics as well. They're, they're both really interesting fields. And uh, there's and like in the terms of critical care, both are just incredibly unique and very interesting. And I, I kind of always knew I wanted to like, you know, focus on critical care. I wasn't mm. absolutely sure whether that'd be kind of pediatric critical care or adult. And later on, I kind of decided, you know, I'd rather, you know, focus on adult, you know, critical care. And that's what you do now, right? So I, I imagine you don't, well, I, I know you, you probably don't do any sort of uh, pediatrics at all. None, none at all. Well, the, I, the last time you did it probably was residency maybe. Yep. 
Nice, nice, nice. And when did you make that decision to like toggle away completely from 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 the pediatric side? Well, you know, it's um, there. There is some kind of debate now about whether med peds as a field kind of is you know st- should still exist. Maybe I don't know the exact phrase, uh, like or the exact wording of it, but. You know, as time goes on, both medicine and pediatrics are becoming more and more like specialized. Mm. And then additionally, on top of that, you know, there's this, you know, because the idea of med peds was that you could work somewhere rurally and you could, you know, take care of adults and you could take care of kids in Mm -hmm. an inpatient setting. um, And you could do primary care in that same way. Not so dissimilar to like family medicine, but uh, somewhat kind of its own thing. But from the world of like specialization... Uh, it's, you know, the question is, is that, is there kind of a role for med peds? And, and there definitely is, are some roles. Like, so if you decide that you want to do allergy immunology, mm-hmm. you know, it's great if you have a med peds background, because even though there's no pediatric or adult allergy immunology, it's all the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's a great field where if you have like that dual background, it's very helpful. And then there are other kind of like niche fields that where doing med peds would be very helpful. For example, there's a, an adult congenital cardiology subfellowship, and you can go into it through the uh, adult cardiology world or the peds cardiology world. Ah. Um, but we're talking like a good through four years of like training and practice after you're done with residency. And so that would be a great field to have both like internal medicine and pediatric background. But like overall, like that kind of that aspect of it is sort of like, you know, disappearing a little bit. Is is because you, you kind of mentioned it a little bit because family medicine uh, feels like a medpeds um, institution as well. Mm-hmm. How what what are the main for you for your casual listener here or your casual watcher? What what's the big difference between medpeds and say family medicine? Why not just do family medicine? Other than the, other than the 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 point that you highlight, highlighted is the availability of the subspecialties sure. which, which you get through internal medicine and or pediatrics mm-hmm. why not just do family medicine say if you want to be able to do the rural medicine stuff well i think um family medicine is considered more of an outpatient kind of residency gotcha. although i would say that there's so many family physicians out there that take care of patients on the inpatient side. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and so, but you know, the thing is, is that that's kind of the focus I would suppose. And like to have, like to be kind of a primary care doctor. Whereas on the other hand, internal medicine, pediatrics focuses on everything because it's basically a full internal medicine residency and a full pediatrics residency. So in that respect, you know, I would say, you know, it's, it's at least, you know, it focuses on both the primary care aspects of things as well as the inpatient side of things. I, I, I feel like here in the United States and probably in other Western countries, um, th- these are the only places where internal medicine is actually viewed as a primary, mm-hmm. as a primary, um, uh, I guess, medical provider. Because yes. everywhere else you have to, it's a, it's a subspecialty. Yes, absolutely. Um, my, my roommate in medical school is Canadian yeah. and he went back to Canada for residency uh, his name's Peter and shout out to Peter. Yeah. Shout out to Peter, <laughs> I guess. Um, and so when he, you know, when he and I both started residency, he, he, you know, we were kind of talking about our experiences and he goes, wait, what do you mean you have a clinic? He's like, aren't you internal medicine? Uh, and I, and I said, yeah, yeah, but you don't, you know, we do clinic as well. We have a, you know, a continuity clinic every week. And he, he was, he just goes, clinic is for family medicine. Internal medicine stays in the hospital. 
And that's, and you know, it, I didn't really know that until, you know, he kind of told me his experience. And, and then after that, I found out that that is pretty normal in some respects. Is that what the internal means? Outpatient versus inpatient? I wonder if that's I what... I thought it meant inside the body. <laughs> <laughs> but all of medicine is inside the body. Oh, I now that I think about it, I wonder if internal medicine actually means straight up inpatient inside the hospital, internal medicine. I guess. I need to, I need to look this up. This would be really cool to find out however many years after I've done it. That's, mm-hmm. We don't know the origins of any of the words that we use. Yeah, medicine is weird. That I, I like to ask people, like, you know, where did the word pimping come from? Because <laughs> uh, pimping is, a, you know, such a common word in yeah, medicine. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. not pimping ain't easy pimping. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, and no one knows the answer. Apparently it's German. Um, really? I, yeah, I think it, there was a word called like pumpfrage or something like that. I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. But it meant to like pump for information. Uh, and and that's exactly what pimping is. It's just being put on the spot and being asked a question and then squirming when you don't know the answer. <laughs> Which every one of us has experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So after internal medicine, you then do pump crate with yours truly mm-hmm. at uh, the great the great Tulane, the Green Wave. Um, what what what's your general feel for what? One internal residency was and fellowship was. What's your general feel that of that entire training experience? Well, my my entire training experience, like yours, was in Louisiana, mm-hmm. and um, Louisiana is definitely a different place in comparison to Chicago. the rest of the United States and mm-hmm. Chicago and New York, all these places. And um, I, I like to consider it a unique opportunity in mm-hmm. some respects. Uh, you know. The hospital that I originally worked at when I moved here no longer exists. It's called uh, Interim LSU Hospital, or ILH. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I like to tell some of our trainees now, you know, that working at ILH was a different experience. Um, and I only spent one year there. There are people that spent far more time there than I did. Mm-hmm. And it was just such a unique experience because things would break down all the time. And I don't think that anywhere else in the United States, you could have such an experience. And when I tell people about it, they're kind of shocked. And uh, what I will say is, is that it teaches you a level of resiliency that you, you can't get anywhere else. <laughs> right. I mean, like to, to give you an example, um, and I, I don't know if you remember this, because I think we've, we've definitely talked about this in the past. Yeah. There would be times at ILH where the power would go out for not just like 30 minutes or so, Sometimes like six to eight hours. And that's kind of an insane thing to say. Like, you know, because it's a hospital. <laughs> like, it's not like, and, and this would be at a, at a point where like, there'd be no power outages anywhere else in New Orleans. And it's just ILH. Yeah, it would just be ILH. I wonder if they were paying their bills. Well, honestly, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and now you're working as an attending. And mm-hmm. So we're both out, two going on, we're Third year, yeah. Third year out. Mm-hmm. What's that been like? The transition from felt trainee to attending. What's that been like? Well, I mean, at the beginning, um, one of my uh, colleagues who just graduated from LSU in pulmonary critical care, we had the same job mm-hmm. at uh, University Medical Center. And he and I used to joke that we're not really attendings. We're just very senior fellows. <laughs> um, and, and the reason is, is because uh, transitioning in a place where you were once like a fellow or a trainee, mm-hmm. some people say that's difficult. And the reason they say it's difficult is because people see you 
as a trainee still, even though you're not a trainee. Right, right, right. And uh, that's kind of, and the, you know, there's always this kind of thing where it's like, oh, don't take a job where you trained. And, you know, because you're never going to get the respect. And I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, I will say that, you know, a lot of our, you know, ancillary staff and things like that, you know, kind of still treated us like we were, you know, still the same trainees that we were. But, you know, overall that it doesn't really matter to me because I feel like, you know, everyone should just be part of the same team. And, you know, even though theoretically the attending is the leader of that team, mm -hmm. I have a very laid back leadership style. So it didn't really bother me much, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of that experience. But I definitely did see it. Like it, it did feel a little bit strange to kind of continue training in the place where uh, continue like being a staff physician in the place where I did all my training. That's definitely something I thought about when when um, I was looking for a job. I I did want to kind of um, branch out and can find my own identity outside mm -hmm. of 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 my attendings that taught me because uh, I, I really feel that a lot of who you are and how you practice is just a reflection of who has taught you, right? Yes. Um, what has that been like for you, right? So like the people that helped mold you into the pulmonary critical care physician that you are today are still very much around you. Mm -hmm. what, what has that been like um, when, you know, you're, you're, you're signing out to someone that you used to, you know, call for help? Like, like what has that been like? You know, I, I will say it like this, I truly feel that I worked with some great people mm -hmm. and all of those people are so incredibly, you know, gracious mm -hmm. and modest and without ego that it's not a problem. I can imagine somewhere out there, there's going to be someone that brings up the fact that you are, you know, you know, like that will remind you that you're still a, tra you know, that you were once their trainee or something like that. The PGY counters. Yeah. I'm PGY 25, <laughs> you're PGY. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. But like the people, the people that we trained with and mm -hmm. worked with, I never felt like that. Um, like to me, it was just like, it didn't matter that you were, you know, that you're, you know, a few years below them or several years below them. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just, you know, you're part of the same team and, and, and I think that's great in, in that respect. It's, it's why I enjoy working at uh, UMC and I enjoy all of my LSU and Tulane, you know, colleagues. Right, right. That's awesome. And I know you are a, a travel enthusiast. I mean, we, sp we spoke about India a little bit and you mentioned there are a lot of places that you like to be. Mm -hmm. um, and you just came back from somewhere, didn't you? I went to Europe in November. Was it November? I guess, yeah. I guess now it hasn't been that long since November. Probably but just yeah. like a couple months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. What was that like? Where'd you go? Um, started in Spain and then uh, took a train into uh, into Paris, uh, no, into France and then Milan and then to Paris and then to Dublin. It was kind of over like two and a half weeks. Uh, any particular, uh, purpose for the trip other than just to see the places or are there places you'd never been to before? So, I mean, I've been to Spain several times, but mm -hmm. I haven't really explored Fla France or Italy or, uh, Ireland. And that was kind of the reason, uh, a friend of mine and I, we both had free time and that's, that's the main reason we went. <laughs> um, the other thing I know about you is diving. Yes. Diving. And it's, I think it's really cool how mm. you got into diving. So mm -hmm. I think you, you started doing it relatively recently, right? As an, as a, as an adult. Yeah. And it was while you were here that you did the training. Is that accurate? While you were, you were here in, 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 re in a residency. Yeah. I, yeah, did, yeah, yeah. Did a, I got a, officially certified. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about how that came to be. How did you even get exposed to that? And you were like, yeah, I want to do that. 
I think, uh, I mean, I definitely might have done some diving when I shouldn't have in Grenada <laughs> uh, and snorkeling and things like that. And then after that, you know, I kind of didn't really think about it. And then uh, when I was in residency, I did some more diving um, in, in Asia when I had a vacation. Mm. And then after that, I was like, well, I really just want to continue doing this. And I, and I want to do it kind of legally and not like, well, the one I did in Asia was legal. But uh, <laughs> like I want to I get certified and I right, want to keep right, on doing right. that. And so it's, it's something that, uh, you know, so I went and I got certified and then I did like an advanced certification. And, you know, and I kept on getting various like certifications through PADI. And, and I kind of love that experience. I, I really wonder sometimes if it kind of changes my perspective as a pulmonologist. Mm. Um, a lot of our patients are on ventilators. Mm -hmm. And, you know, scuba is, is similar in that respect. You know, it's, uh, you know, you're, you're breathing in from not just from like the atmosphere, but you're breathing in through kind of like a machine. Yeah. And it's definitely one of those things where I really kind of feel for our patients in that respect because of all the diving that I've done. What, what do you get from diving? Why do you like it so much? Um, I guess I like the quiet and I like to mm. see the, like the beauty that's under the ocean, uh, that's under the water, I should mm -hmm. say. Um, it's kind of, a, it's kind of wonderful to not, you know, like, you know, speak to anybody to kind of like to use your like hand signals to, to like talk to other people and then kind of just to be in your immersed in this other world, uh, under the water. Uh, so much, like so many things to see. What's the coolest thing you ever saw? So or, or what's, I guess, what's the coolest thing you've ever seen while diving? And then what is the most surreal thing you've ever seen? And it, it could be the same thing. Oh, um, the coolest thing I've ever seen was uh, sea lions. And I, and I saw those in the Galapagos Islands. And that was just kind of amazing because the Galapagos has so much like sea life darwin's uh, galapagos yeah darwin's galapagos mm. like all the way in the pacific in the middle of nowhere and um it's just kind of beautiful in this respect there's just so much sea life and things to see and like all these different sharks and manta rays and turtles and sea lions and things like that and i swear like a sea lion i have a video of this like just came up and just kind of like wanted to play and you know you're not in and, and it was just kind of like i didn't want to touch it but it kept on just getting closer to me and it's just like up in, in front of my video camera in the yeah, weirdest yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I just love that. It was such a, a crazy experience. Do you, um, and was that, is that also the surreal? No, um, in, in Mexico, I went cave diving. And uh, that is by far the scariest thing I have ever done. How is that different from regular diving? I mean, it's, I guess it's obvious in the cave part, but mm -hmm. like, how is that different from regular diving? Well, like a lot of diving that you do, it's considered like open water diving. Gotcha. But when you're in a cave system... Uh, there's no way to kind of surface. You have to, you know, you're just completely in a cave system that's submerged underwater. Wow. Uh, and it is, it, it's funny because I did a, like three dives maybe in uh, these various cave systems mm -hmm. uh, called like cenotes in, mm -hmm. in, in Mexico. And uh, I definitely had like a minor panic attack the first time. Um, and it's funny because our guide basically, we came out and he just goes, you're nervous, I can tell you've used up way too much oxygen. Wow. Like, uh, and, and the reason is, is because, you know, there, there's, there are risks to diving. I don't, I don't deny it. And it, when you're doing open water diving, there's, if something bad happens, you surface, right. right? And you, and you, and that's just what you do. There's no way to surface when you're, you're cave diving right. because you're completely submerged. 
And so because of that, if something bad happens, that's it. It's no, it's not. That's it. <laughs> Just like, but it's a lot riskier in right, this respect. Right, right, and, right. you know, there are places where you're especially in like the cenotes that I dive through where you're just kind of like surrounded by like, you know, by just like rock formations and things like that. And so it's, and there's like, I don't think we saw any like, like animal life, like when I, when we did it. So it was, it's just kind of to see this, like uh, all the rock formations and things like that. I think there was one part of the cave that we did surface in. And then there was just thousands and thousands of bats, I guess. So there was some like animal life. But How did bats even get there if it's... So there, there are portions of the cave that are, like you can like surface in, but mm-hmm. like... 80% of, of those caves are all just completely underwater. How does one even... Is is that spelunking or is that different? No, sp- spelunking is just like exploring through caves, I think. Like this is... Oh. And like all of the, the, the dives that I, I went on, it's all in on, like in paths that have already kind of been like... Navigated, know, navigated and, through. and path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah like yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not an adventurer. <laughs> I just... <laughs> That's awesome. I, I, the closest I ever gone to diving was scuba. On the Cayman, in the Cayman Islands, mm-hmm. I did scuba and then snuba, which is some, I, I think it's a, some middle ground between mm-hmm. both of those things. And basically you just have like a, 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 a pipe that gives you air from the boat and you don't go very far. I've seen that before. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool. And you don't go far at all. You just, you know, you're just there, you have your little flippers and mm-hmm. um, you're not wearing any special suit. It's just the, the, mm-hmm. the helmet that's kind of attached to you. And you you swim around, and that was a really cool experience. After that, I wanted to go into diving, but then um, sometimes water scares me, man. I, even though I even though I grew up on an island, sometimes too much water like that can be harrowing for me. So I was just like, nah, I'll just I'll just watch other people. <laughs> yeah, you can definitely like, you can definitely be afraid. Like yeah, yeah. just it. Sometimes I get afraid too, and uh, you know it's just you know you just get over it. I think, but I mean. I could understand why people sometimes would not. <laughs> it, what, what has been your scariest experience? Um, uh, I mean, something went wrong with my regulator when I was in the Galapagos Islands and I just like swallowed a mouthful of water. No way. And yeah. And this that, is underwater. Uh, so I was, we were, we were descending at the time mm. and I don't know what exactly happened. And I kind of just like lost it. I was only like maybe like less than 10 meters down. Okay. And I, I kind of surfaced and then, you know, I cleared my regulator and then I, I went back down. <laughs> Like, uh, and you know, I think the the guide was just like, do you want to go back? And I was just like, nah, it's, it's fine. Like just, I was definitely, my heart was pumping on that one. I can imagine. I can imagine. What else do you do? What, what's, what, what are the hobbies, uh, interest you? I know um, you cook. Yeah. Excellent I'm, chef. I mean, I like to cook, uh, in residency, I, I tried to take up painting. Uh, have you done any, any painting like full proper painting? Yeah. Uh, I've done a, I've done a bunch of it. I'm not a great painter. Like just, uh. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, everyone else in my family is like really artistically oriented. Mm. My brother's won a lot of art awards. My mom paints a lot. All of her sisters paint. And I, I'm just not good at painting. And so like the goal was, is that I want to get better at this. And so I, I started randomly painting things. Some of the things that I painted are, you know, are, you know, like when you, you know, when you go out onto like Royal Street or you're like, you know, looking through various, you know, art galleries and things like that, I would see things and I'd just be like, I want that. And then I would look at the price tag and it would be like $5,000. Like just, and then I would try to like make like a facsimile copy of it. Yeah, like, yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. it wasn't perfect, but it was just kind of, it was kind of like a game to me and I, I'm not trying to sell anything or anything like that. I'm just, I'm just bored. Like just. I've, I've mixed feelings about, um, high art, not mm-hmm. mixed feelings. I have feelings about high art. I, 
I, I went to um there's a there's a really nice gallery here in New Orleans, MS Rao. You know that you know that place? You 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 need to go. You would love it. Where it's, is it? It's uh downtown, it's on Magazine Street. Oh, okay. Um in the French Quarter, MS Rao. Mm-hmm. They do antiques and like really cool things like I have been there. Yeah. Yeah. And that place is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. I had never been up until maybe two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago. And it's just a huge warehouse of some of the coolest antique things, paintings, um, um, jewelry, uh, like Napoleon's foot bath was there. Like, there's a lot of weird stuff. There's in there. a lot of weird stuff there. And they, like and the things that they sell, and of course, the prices, but paint, painting and high art. I always think about I, this. There's a public prank that I would love to do if I ever had the money to do it is to open up a gallery. And just paint on the side somewhere, open up a gallery and put an egregious price tag mm-hmm. on whatever it is I come up with and see if someone will buy it. Because there's no, I don't think, I don't, I don't think anyone can convince me that there is a true standardized format to assessing high quality paint. Because going to MS Rao, you see different paintings from different um, artists, famous artists, Picasso. Mm-hmm. Everybody's there. Everybody's at, at this gallery, and there's some of some of some of the paintings. Like this is actually just straight up hideous, and the only <laughs> reason it costs this much is because of the name that's attached to it. Yeah, right. And that's just because someone invented a value to it, and that just stuck, right? Sure. I mean, like, I, you know, like part of the reason I like art is because I took like an art history class in mm-hmm. college. And I'll never forget this because it was one of these 101 type courses. And mm-hmm. there were just tons and tons of like people in it that kind of thought it would be kind of a blow off sort of class. And it was taught that year by a visiting professor. And I believe she was from Harvard. And she basically was just like, we're going to teach this my way. And she went from like, you know, the, the beginnings of art, like mm-hmm. Venus of Willendorf kind of thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. all the way to modern art, like a complete overview of all of our art history in like one semester. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, you know, I still sometimes go back and look at my notes in, from there, like cause it's just really interesting because I kind of realized that there's there's two aspects to art. Uh, the first one is, is that there is technical, you know, improvements in art, you know, so because Obviously, like, you know, if you look at art from like, you know, cave, cave drawings, and then you look at modern art, there's just kind of uh, like, there's just been like this constant forward movement. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in that, in that class, we learned a lot about that, you know, the way we learn to like work with tints and, you know, chiaroscuro and all these other things and the way like, you know, art becomes more like hyper real as time goes on. Mm -hmm. And then after that, there's also a second kind of aspect. And that is, you know, what we're painting and why we're painting it. And you'll see as time goes on, like, you know, art becomes more political. Art becomes a statement. Mm-hmm. And it, and you know, and at the very beginning, you know, like it's at first, it's just cave drawings and things like that. And then after that, the vast majority of art tends to be, you know, religious iconography, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, kind of paintings of like fame, like not famous people, but like kings and queens, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then after that, we start to see this change. And you know, there's like paintings of battles. And then after that, there's more like you know political kind of like statements to art. You know, I, I and then after that, now we're kind of in that postmodern kind of aspect where we're kind of showing that art 
you know, doesn't have to mean anything. And, right. and sometimes, and, like, and that's the problem. Like that abstract modern stuff is probably the stuff that people sometimes don't like. And I think there's a documentary called like My Kid Could Paint That. Uh, that kind of like, you know, discusses some of these things, because when you're in this kind of postmodern era, like um, this, you know, abstract kind of era, you know, it definitely does feel sometimes like it's just like an inflated value to something that anyone could do. But, you know, I, I think sometimes the thought that goes into it and the, you know, the effort that you make is is part of the is kind of part of like why. You know, you do it, I suppose. Yeah, because I, I wish what I wish the high art was uh, was actually a, a and high art in this case is like the you know the art the art that's worth you know millions and millions or hundreds of thousands and millions and millions of dollars. I wish it was more a reflection of technicality, mm. how technically difficult it was to for the artist, and to it, it was more of a reflection of that artist's um, progression in their craft, but. Again, going to art galleries, you you'll see something that is that would have taken the artist um, a, a very long time, mm -hmm. weeks, months, whatever, years, versus something that looks like someone just splashed some paint, and the one with the splotches is more expensive, and <laughs> and that actually blows my mind. Um, I mean, why is anything expensive? Like, why why is it a Beanie Baby cost like an insane <laughs> amount of money, or like crypto keeps on going <laughs> like? It's just like the value that we give to it. Like, I mean, why is gold expensive? Like, That's it's, true. it just is what it is. People, people have a demand for it. Yeah, people need to to put some more respect on on. I guess I just want to value the technicality of it. Like, how, oh, I guess, the, yeah. how, how difficult it it was because there's no other way to actually infer um, the meaning. Because the the argument mm -hmm. for abstract art is that it puts the onus of interpretation on the viewer, right? On the on the person, on the yeah. beholder, if you will, mm -hmm. I, I I think that's that's a that's a cop out. Well, no, I mean, like sometimes they tell you what the meaning is, though. I, I you know I I remember when I was in high school, me and my friends went to the Art Institute of Chicago, and it's just a great place to kind of walk around. Mm -hmm. And there's a there was a like a piece, and for the life of me, I cannot remember who made this, but it was literally just candies that were kind of like in a you know in a carpet on the ground. And, and there was a sign that said you could pick up a candy and you could eat it. Um, and they were wrapped, obviously. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then there was another sign that kind of explained the art. And um, this was a guy that was dying of AIDS. And he wanted to kind of create a more interactive piece where he basically, you know, showed that you were like taking a piece of him every time you ate a piece of candy. Um, and it was such a kind of, I, and I never would have ever thought of that as an idea. Mm -hmm. And I never would have thought of like, using candy in that way to kind of, you know, describe the whole, like his situation. Mm -hmm. Like, and it was just very like, and I was just like, oh, and you know, and I'm sucking on this piece of like hard candy and I'm just like, damn, this had way more meaning than I thought it would. <laughs> like, just, I was like, oh, free candy. I was 16. Like, right, just, right, 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 right. And, uh, you know, and like, and, and that's the whole thing, right? Like, it's just, it's very modern, it's abstract and it's, and the idea is just like crazy. There's another famous one of like, um, of an artist, oh man, I'm just blanking on names right now. There's two clocks mm -hmm. and one clock is no longer moving. And that represents the time of this, this artist, his lover died also, unfortunately of AIDS, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then the other clock kept on going because he was still alive. Mm -hmm. And it was a representation that, you know, that, you know, time had stopped, you know, in some respect for him when his, when his partner died. I think I can appreciate that because mm -hmm. that, I think what it is that I'm, 
I realize what it is. I appreciate that the thought process wasn't, I'll just do something mm-hmm. and leave the interpretation to others. Mm-hmm. It, it, in those specific examples, I appreciate that the, there is meaning implied by the creator mm-hmm. and that is important to me. I think making senseless art... <laughs> You're not a fan of like obviously like splotches on a on a, yeah, on a canvas Jackson, or like yeah Jackson Pollock yeah, or Mondrian yeah, yeah, like yeah okay because I mean, that that feels like something you can just replicate. Um, it feels um, and obviously mm-hmm. I'm not an expert at these. things. No, of course not. I, Neither am I. I'm yeah, just, I'm, a, I'm a casual I'm, observer. I'm gonna stick to medicine. <laughs> I'm definitely sticking to medicine, but I'm not an obser- I'm not a an expert on how to uh, assess these values, but. From from a very and I'll, I'll I'll agree from a very simplistic mind. Mm-hmm. If th- I like the idea of the creator imparting value mm-hmm. on what is being created and not um, throwing that uh, that that job or giving that responsibility to the person observing your creation, I think I mm-hmm. like that because even in the in the in the examples you gave. The deep meaning was implied by the creator. You see yeah. what I'm saying? Whereas if he just put up a clock, yeah, and you know, and then you're just he put up a clock that's not working, another clock, and he's like, "What do you think of that?" <laughs> no, of course. I mean, you have to explain it. I, yeah. I think, like, say for Jackson Pollock, mm-hmm. there is like a technical difficulty into in making those kinds of paintings. Um, it, I mean, it's not just splattering right. paint on a, I'm on a sure canvas. There is. I'm sure there is. Like, but overall, though, I I understand like why people don't like that kind of art. Like, uh, and it's definitely tough. I, I, I don't pretend to be some expert though. I know what I like is really what it is. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do like elements of surrealism. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like elements of, I, I like also simplistic art as well. Mm-hmm. Like art that, uh, is a little bit less brandished, but still has some sort of meaning. Mm-hmm. I find it's like you're bearing down something to the bones and, the the purest meaning kind of manifests itself that way. Yeah, I um, definitely can see that. Uh, let's go back to traveling. Where where is the coolest place that you can think of right now that's been like the the most the most memorable place that you've been that you know that left something on you? Um, hmm, that's a good question. That is a very very good question. I'm trying to think actually because. Because I've seen your Instagram. You've been to some really cool places. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like I, you know, my family and I, we traveled to India a lot. Mm-hmm. And then we tried to go other places too. But my parents like, cannot like tropical kind of places. And mm-hmm. so we would go to like, you know, Cancun or Jamaica or like, you know, Puerto Rico. Those were the kind of places that yeah. we would always travel to. And so I think that on some level, you know, I wanted to go to other places, you know, and so... Uh, we had, I hadn't been to Europe much, so I've been trying to make up for that and try to go to different places in Europe. And then I, I also wanted to travel to Asia because it's a place that I'd never been to. Um, and I'm trying to think um, what specifically really, really, really kind of just blew my mind. I, I will say I, I went to Japan this mm-hmm, year, mm-hmm. and that was an amazing experience because um, wh- one of the cardiologists I work with, you know, he, you know he, when he found out I was going to Japan, he's just like, it's like nothing else. And one of the one of my colleagues, Jay, he also is just like, oh, yeah, I would live there if I could. Um, because it is like... I know Jay. Yeah, exactly. And like, and it's just an amazing experience. It's like no other kind of place. It, it's very, very, very kind of electric in that experience. And I don't speak a lick of Japanese. My, my brother speaks it some. And, 
And it's just funny because it doesn't matter that you don't speak it. It's just like every everything just kind of feels just well designed and just well kept. And every and there and there just seems to have there seems to be purpose to everything, mm. you know. And I I kind of loved it. It was it was kind of a wonderful experience. It sounds like a thoughtful society. Mm, yeah, but I mean, like historically, if you look at it, like it's not <laughs> you know it's not all it's cracked up to right, be. Right, right. There there is a lot of like uh, ethnocentrism within Japan. They don't like outsiders. Uh, there's definitely there's the, you know so it's not all perfect like it's great to go there as a tourist i don't think it would be the same thing to live there right um you know it's and, and that just goes to show you that you know it's you know it's what what you experience sometimes as a tourist is not at all what things are like in real life right 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 um so i mean who knows i mean i just feel like that was a wonderful experience my my understanding of um japan has always been second hand experience i've never been i definitely want to go it's definitely one of the places on my list and i have friends that live there and i have friends that have lived there one of my previous guests a great friend of ours um um mariah thompson she and her husband kevin mm-hmm. lived in japan he's he's he is in the military mm. and so they lived in japan um for a few years and like i said i have a, i have another friend of mine um who lives there now and i'm curious to hear what that like from her i'd love to talk to 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 uh the latter and see what that experience is like living there everything i've ever heard about is exactly what you said everything was designed with purpose it's it's structured it's orderly yeah it's clean um and they do they do make it reminds me of a very famous quote uh from someone who makes uh who makes cars essentially mm-hmm and oh no it was Steve Jobs he was talking about about why do japanese companies not advertise their cars essentially at the time mm-hmm. and it's basically because the car is the advertisement right yeah because the car speaks for itself ca- yeah. the car speaks for itself they, they don't advertise the vehicle there's like you you see the car you mm-hmm. drive it you're going to love it and i feel like a lot of the culture of japan Again, from a second experience and just from all the things that I've read, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. seems to kind of permeate into everyday life over there. Um, so I'm, I, I'd love to see it. Yeah. And, and the thing is, for me personally, I, you know, there's a lot of people that are kind of into Japan and, you know, and I, I never was that kind of person. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of came in with no expectations, you know. Uh, and then I was just kind of like blown away by how amazing it is. Uh, you. Do you, and I, I'm guessing you share the, you share the same sentiments that you would visit, but you would not live there. No, I mean like, uh, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like on some level, I would I wouldn't mind it, but I think it would just be very difficult. You know, one of the the crazy things about being a doctor, as you know, is that you can't just move around so easily, um, especially to um, Western countries or you know, or developed countries because every single country has their own rules about yeah. what it takes to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And and much in that same way, you know, you know, my mom, you know, she was a physician in India and she had to come back, come to the United States. And when she came here, she had to redo all of her training because America has the same rules like mm-hmm. that. And, and that's just kind of how it is. So, you know, it, it's, it's one of those like, you know, like, you know, flights of fancy to say, oh, I could live here or I want to live here because, you know, where am I going to get a job? I guess that's yeah, so it's yeah, just yeah, kind of yeah, like, yeah. but I, I wouldn't mind it. I think it would be a, a great experience. Where, where would you live? Where, if you had to live somewhere else that's not here, um, and to make it 
even more difficult. It can't be India, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I would survive in India. It's definitely a different place. But where where would you live? I don't know, actually. I don't really feel like. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's it's that's kind of a, a really interesting question. I like big cities. Mm. Um, I I, but I enjoy nature as well. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that I would enjoy living somewhere really rural. Um, but you know. I, I have no clue to be honest with you. <laughs> it, 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 but you strike me as someone that is very handy. I feel like rural life does fit you too, though. Like you, you're very handy. You, you, you know, you, you, you're, you cook. You know, I knowing you, especially because I know you, you take care of a lot of stuff. You do. Mm-hmm. You're your own handyman, right? So you take Kinda. care of a lot of stuff in your own home. And sure, it's in the context of Western society. But I feel like you do really well in uh, rural. Yeah, rural but like, setting. but the thing is, is that like it's. Uh, that isolationist kind of feeling. I don't. I don't. I don't know necessarily if I like that. I enjoyed New York. There's like millions of people there. But like, if you want to be alone, you can be alone. If you want to spend time with others, you can spend time with others. That's and a- like, and you can't. You don't have that option. The more rural you go, it's more like be alone or be alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's an interesting dichotomy about you then, because um, on one hand, there's diving that offers you that like. Yeah that peace and quiet mm-hmm. but then you also love the city yeah i mean i i feel like you you can have it both ways yeah, like absolutely. Absolutely. you just get sick of people and then you don't get <laughs> sick of people and then you get sick of people it's yeah. you know you vacillate between the two <laughs> yeah any um talk about a little bit about the food uh any particular delicacies that you enjoy uh nah i feel like uh i don't know i i think it's kind of like a great experience to you know growing up the way I did because mm-hmm. my, my mom cooked a lot of Indian food. And mm-hmm. then after that, she also cooked some other Asian food that she learned how to cook. And then now, like, you know, I, I cook the things that my mom taught me to make, but I like to do other, th- uh, cook other things too. Uh, I think, uh, a few, a few years ago, I, I started to get more into like Cajun and Creole cooking and you used to, do you still, uh, uh, was it cured the meat? Oh um, yeah, I I also got into dry aging, yeah, like dry big slabs aging, of beef, yeah, yeah, and that yeah, was yeah, yeah. that was kind of a fun experience. Are you still doing that? Uh, no, I stopped doing that after Hurricane Ida, and what the happened? reason is is because I lost lots and lots of meat due to the power being out for so mm. long, and it kind of just like made me think, oh, another hurricane's coming, and I'm about to get screwed <laughs> over. Like, even though that's not the case, right, right, right. Like, right. and so I I kind of like slowed down on that. So I haven't like dry aged anything since Ida. And like, just cause I don't want to have to have like, you know, 20 pounds, 30 pounds of meat in a freezer somewhere only to have to lose all of it when the power goes out. I, I get, I think I just realized, I don't know what dry aging is. Um, I just assumed dry aging was you literally just literally dry aged it, like left it out somewhere. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of like a controlled, like, um, you know, pre- preservation of sorts of meat. You, you kind of keep meat in like a, in kind of a cold environment that's dry. And what that does is, is that it starts to like, um, like wick, like take moisture away from the meat. Mm-hmm. But then additionally on top of that, and people kind of get weirded out by this, it also kind of is causing the meat to spoil a little bit. Right, right, right. But since it's a big slab of meat, what's happening is, is that that spoiling is happening on the outside. And it's, and it's actually making the meat kind of funkier because it's a lactic kind of acid fermentation. Mm-hmm. And so there's a different flavor to the meat. And then additionally, on top of that, like the meat taste is a lot richer because you've also 
let some of the moisture come out of the meat. Wow. And can, so, can you dry age every meat? Are all meats dry ageable? I'm no expert on it, but I think you can dry age a lot of different things. I don't know if it's worth doing that. Right. I don't think people dry age chicken. Like just, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't eat dry age chicken. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I don't actually know. I, it was just more over, you know, can I do it? And I tried it and it was, it was fun and, and, and dry age meat is expensive. Like, so it's to kind, buy. Yeah. To buy. So it's kind of nice to do it because that way you always have access to it. What was the longest you were able to dry age something? I did 65 days once. Was uh, that the one we had? No, no. I think I just did a 30 days when you had a uh, steak at my house. And that was a good steak. Mm-hmm. That was a good steak. I wonder if you can dry age like duck and like rabbit, like uh, I don't know. I deer, mean, that kind of stuff. So one of the things is that when, when you do dry age like a big like piece of meat, you end up getting this kind of like dry like, like carcass on the outside. It's mm-hmm. called a pellicle. And you have to like cut that off. So it's really better designed for large slabs of meat. But I don't actually know if you could, I mean, maybe, I'm, I'm sure you could try it. <laughs> yeah, because I imagine if, if you do it with a smaller one, then the vast majority of it would be gone to waste. And yeah. So you're just wasting, mm-hmm. wasting that meat. Yeah, you really have to get like big cuts, right. like 15, 20, even more, like if, like in terms of weight, like pounds. I'm going to have to Google that to see if you could, like like deer meat, for instance, you could probably do it with a big elk or something like that. I guess you could. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it's been done. Or a bison, <laughs> dry-aged bison. I've Probably, had, yeah. 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 Bison meat is really, really, really good. Yeah. I, I really like that. Um, hobbies, home hobbies, books, etc. I mean, I read a lot, but like, uh, I don't know. I sometimes like I'm in between reading medical stuff and then like random books, nonfiction, uh, a lot of like sci-fi fantasy stuff. I, li- I like to read like it's, you know, it's just something to pass the time. It, it, it strikes me as um, pretty cool that you stayed back in academic medicine, mm-hmm. right? Especially because of your, knowing you, I know how passionate you are about academia and mm-hmm. teaching. Um, but every, uh, again, going back to dichotomy, so much of who you are is kind of like a free, uh, you, you don't consider yourself an explorer. I, I especially, I guess you're an explorer within within boundaries. So like, yeah. Right. So why, why did you stay with academic medicine? Cause that's where you are now yeah. to some degree. I, I like teaching. Yeah. Um, I don't want to pretend that I'm good at teaching. I, I think one of the, the craziest things about medical education is that the people in medical education have zero background in education. Mm. Um, and I don't know if anyone's brought this up on your podcast yet, but it's, it's just kind of, it's the thing that drives me nuts more than anything else. It's people that have no, no teaching experience uh, that are physicians being basically told, okay, here are some people, you have to teach them. Mm. And I, I think that, you know, one of the things that draws me to academic medicine is that I had some great teachers, but I also had a lot of really bad teachers. Right, right. And it really made me think, you know, how would I do it differently? Um, and and I, I think that I put a lot of effort into the way I teach and kind of like my teaching strategy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's the right way. Um, I will say that I think that there's a lot of different ways to do it. You know, at a at, at a conference that I was just at, it's a, the Tri-State Conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the keynote speaker was someone that specifically works in medical education. And uh, she gave this kind of like lecture on how to be a better teacher. And it was, it was just wonderful. 
Um, it, it kind of went over things that I already knew because mm-hmm. uh, I've definitely looked into this and researched this. But it also kind of talked about, you know, making sure how, like how to like motivate learners, which is something that I personally struggle with um, because there's definitely been like a cultural shift in medicine when it comes to, you know, mo- when it comes to being motivated. Uh, and so it was definitely sort of like, you know, if the person isn't, you know, isn't all there when they're like learning, when they're, th- when you're trying to teach them, you have to ask yourself, you know, why is it they're not there? And, and that's the other kind of crazy thing about medicine, because you're dealing with adult learners. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people that, you know, I'm teaching my fellows, my residents, they're married, they have children, they have other responsibilities. And, you know, and we kind of don't think about that like in, in some respects. And so that keynote speaker was, uh, she's from, uh, university of Washington. She's, she's just like, if your fellow is not like, you know, all there when you're trying to teach something, you have to ask yourself, are they worried about childcare? Uh, do they have some other responsibility that they need to deal with? Mm -hmm. Is there something else kind of playing into it? And so you should always just be, you know, checking on people, especially, you know, the people like the adult learners that kind of we're, we're working with, to make sure that they don't have other stressors. And it's something that I never thought about. You know, what other responsibilities are there in someone's life in adulthood that kind of play into making it harder for, uh, for you to kind of teach them? Yeah, that's, a gr- that's a great point. Um, I wish I, I wasn't able to make it to Tri-State uh, this year. Um, I'd love to actually reach out to that. Uh, to, do you remember her? Yeah, name? I'll get, I'll send you uh, her email. I think she sent even like the PowerPoint of her presentation. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Send that to me. I'd love to. I'd uh-huh. love to go over that. I, I I wonder if if do you see something in the future where there will be some formalized uh, requirement that you know physicians in medical education have some background in education, or before you get into it that you're doing some sort of. Um, uh, I don't know, education in education. I don't know, actually. I feel like there definitely are like uh, emails that I get from Tulane about like, you know, advancing your like, you know, advancing your career and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, and there's a lot of like medical education things. But in and of itself, I don't think it's going to be a requirement. We do enough stuff in terms of training anyways. <laughs> uh, but I, I do hope that there's a, a cultural shift. We were talking about pimping earlier. Right, 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 right. I, right. I, I don't like it. Uh, there's a lot of things I, I don't like about the way we do things in medicine. Like, what what are your your top three? Okay, I'll. I'll oh man, that's. Oh, we could dive into no, any no, one of I, them. I know my I know my number one. Mm-hmm. Number um, one. Yeah, I definitely know my number one mm-hmm. because it drives me nuts. Um, anytime you know someone asks a question, you you know, and this happened to me all the time in residency. Mm-hmm. You know the uh, you know the staff physician or the attending would say that's a good question. And then they would point to an intern or a medical student and they would say, I want you to present on this tomorrow. Um, And the reason I hate this more than anything else is because first off, you know, a question was asked right now. And so the clinical relevance of it tomorrow is going to mean nothing, Mm -hmm. right? It's not like, so it's just like, you know, you should like think about the answer when the question is asked. Because if you're doing it 24 hours later, it, me- it doesn't mean much. Right, right, right. And then additionally, on top of that, the other thing that kind of drives me crazy about it is that a lot of times it's, it's, you know, that responsibility is given to a medical student. And it's kind of funny that, you know, we want to, you know, we want the medical student to teach everyone a topic when they are the least knowledgeable person in the room. 
and, and, and like to me, like, you know, education should go from the person with the most knowledge down, down. and, and, you know, and I always, I tell people this and it's kind of horrible to say, but, um, you know, I always say if someone says that as like an academic physician, it's probably because they don't know the answer themselves or they're not good at explaining it. And they're kind of just, you know, pushing that work off onto someone else. And, um, and I think a, a much, you know, and that's the thing because I, I had someone ask me, well, well, what's your solution to that? Mm-hmm. And, and that to, was my next question. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would say that if there is a question that I don't know the answer to, um, you know, we all have like, you know, a computer in our, in our pocket, which is our phone. And I think the important teaching point in that scenario is to say, I don't know the answer. I know the answers to these questions specifically surrounding that, but let's look it up because medicine is just so complicated. And sometimes the teaching point is, is that you have to look things up and how to look it up is a really, really important thing too. And that's the, that's the reason why I I just don't like that kind of concept. And you can still give medical students things to present, you know, like, but you don't have to like make them, you know, put them on the spot like that. And, and then after that, that question, you know, is no longer clinically relevant when they're presenting a few days later and so on and so forth. So, so challenging the, challenging the person Mm -hmm. on within the frame within the framework of what is within their knowledge and experience, at least at that time. Yeah. I, now that you're talking about it, it makes me think I'm not in academics, but mm-hmm. perhaps what I would do is in, in, if I wanted to challenge a medical student would be to ask more anatomy, physiology questions, like things related to things that they're actually looking at, learning at this very moment versus so much of what is clinical. Cause I do think there is a, there is a, 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 a thin line, but a significant, a significantly, a significant line between how we practice medicine and how it's taught, like what is in yeah. the books and how it's taught, and mar- like getting those two together should probably be the primary reason why uh, medical students are being in the, in the rounds in the first place. Well, I, I guess I think there's I think there's two separate things that I'm thinking about more mm-hmm. than anything else. The, the first thing is how we teach medical students. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is how we teach residents and fellows. Okay. Um, when it comes to medical students, a lot of time spent, you know, in your third and fourth year, in some respects, you know, what we call our clinical rotations, is getting used to the, the system of the hospital in some respects. Like, you have to learn how to write notes. You have to learn how to present patients, mm-hmm. how to call consults, and, and how to do... Scott work. Right. And, and the funny part is, is that in, in any JM, they, in the New England Journal of Medicine, they just published a piece on this because now, the, you, know, the, you know, a lot of people are saying that like scut work is toxic and making, and making medical students do scut work is incredibly toxic mm-hmm. because it's stuff that nobody wants to do. But the problem is, is that these are skills that you need to learn. And so, and there's still things that need to be done. Yeah. And there's still things that need to be done. Mm-hmm. And, um, and overall, I, I, I get that, like, you know, sending a fax, you know, d- doing things like that. It's not, it's not fun to do, but it's part of the whole, like, you know, kind of experience. And so I, you know, and so that article is just kind of like, where do you draw the line? Because there are definitely a lot of things that we do in medicine that are definitely kind of not fun and somewhat, you know, toxic and they take advantage of medical students, but you know, they are important to learn. And, and so that's, that's like medical student education. You have to make sure that they're learning medicine, but they're also learning kind of the logistics of medicine. 
But then after that, you get to kind of like teaching interns, residents, and fellows. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you would hope that they kind of know the logistics of how to present patients and so on and so forth by the time they get to residency, but they don't always. So mm -hmm. sometimes you have to teach that. Um, but we're getting now to a different aspect where they have to make clinical decisions. And so for me, that is a completely different kind of field because when you're making clinical decisions, now it's moreover like, you know, what exactly, you know, how do you make the decisions that you make from a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. and, you know, why you do, why do you make those decisions and what is the evidence behind those decisions? Mm. And, um, and I've listened to several of your, of the people, uh, on your podcast and, you know, I, I will say this, I, the, the cardiologist that you had, oh mm -hmm. my God, I, I don't remember his name. Which one? I had two of them. Um, there was Dr. Finn and Dr. Jakaju. Uh, oh no. Oh yeah. It wasn't Avanish. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was Dr. Finn. Yeah. You know, he has that statistics background. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, frankly, I feel like you need like an advanced degree in statistics sometimes in medicine to like actually understand the papers mm -hmm. that, you know, we have to read. And, and, and that's the crazy part because more often than not in medicine, I see people say, I ask people like, why did you do this? And, and they say, oh, well, that's just kind of how it's done. And I'm just like, well, why is that? What's the evidence for it? Mm -hmm. You know, is there, and is there new evidence that suggests that you should do something else? Mm -hmm. and, and I tell this to people all the time. I, I remember I, I was working nights maybe about a month or two ago and, and a resident kind of, who I think had like six months left and asked me, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and, no, and, and, and she just goes, oh, I guess making money isn't, doesn't seem so great, does it? And, and the thing is, is that it's more than money to me. I, I said to her, like, you know, 10% of medicine changes from, from year to year. Right. Like, I feel like if you're an accountant, although I don't know this, like 10% of tax law doesn't change every single year. Right, right, right. Maybe there are some changes, but overall, and th there are fields as well where obviously things change, but the speed at which it changes in medicine is kind of crazy. Yeah. Like, you know, and it's exponential. Yeah. And it, and it adds up. Yeah. It definitely adds up. And so, and so, yeah, I, I don't deny it. You know, a lot of times in medicine, it's delayed gratification and you're not making a lot of money in residency and fellowship. But, you know, I think the thing that I, like, I want to like kind of tell people is, is that afterwards, you know, after you're done with your training, unless you stay in academia, you're on your own when it comes to your education mm -hmm. and medicine requires you to be a lifelong learner. Right. Uh, and, and that's the thing because no one, and, and when I try to teach, I'm, I'm trying to obviously teach like how to look things up, uh, especially to like, you know, interns, residents and fellows, but I'm also kind of trying to teach how to look things up and then consider them critically. Uh, because that's the hardest thing because you have to constantly be reading and then additionally, on top of that, you have to constantly be deciding whether or whether or not you want to incorporate the latest kind of research into your clinical practice. And especially because guidelines actually lag behind research. They do. Right. And they lag by they can lag by several years before people catch up. So if you're staying on top of it, if you're staying mm -hmm. on top of it, you're probably going to be doing something two years ahead of absolute time before it becomes guidelines. So being able to critically parse through all of that becomes yeah. even more important. And, and it's really tough. Right. I, don't, I don't think that I'm great at it either. I think that like it takes skill, but I, th I think the most important thing is to make sure that people realize that is what you should be doing. Like, and, and I, I feel like there's kind of like a structured way to kind of go about it. 
you know, as an intern, you should really learn how, like, you know, the, the bureaucracy of the hospital and you should just be focusing on guideline management, you know? Mm. And then as you, and this isn't for internal medicine specifically in second year, you should, you know, kind of be looking into, you know, you should, you know, you should know your guidelines well for like major diseases and Mm -hmm. things like that. And then you should be focusing on, you know, what new research is coming out and, you know, and you should be like, kind. and then, and then as you transition to your third year, you should be trying to figure out how to read a paper clinically and deciding whether, whether or not you want to incorporate it into your clinical practice. And, um, and, you know, and, and like, I can think of things right now, like, like, for example, like, uh, Cape Cod, right. This is the new trial for steroids for pneumonia. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's, you know, it's definitely one of those situations where, you know, you got to read it, you have to decide whether you want to do it. And it's, and, you know, and and that's tough. I I said Cape Cod to one of, uh, one of my like teams just like a few weeks ago. And they're Mm -hmm. like, wait, what? Like just because they hadn't read that paper yet. And that came out maybe like three, four months ago. Right. Um, and that's, that's just how medicine changes. It's kind of crazy in that respect. I, I, I love it. I, I've, I have always thought that, like you said, to work in medicine, you have to, mm-hmm. you have to engage in lifelong learning. Yeah. Um, going back to the looking apart, my previous guest, uh, Brian Wilson, um, he's a, uh, uh, scientist, if you will, like mm-hmm. a, a standard, but he's not a bench scientist anymore. He mm-hmm. does, he doesn't do lab work as much now. He he now works uh, in pharmaceuticals, but he he talks about how essentially you should have a desire to to, to find things out. Mm-hmm. And I think in medicine, you, there has to be that kind of desire to kind of to to be okay to one know when you don't know, and mm-hmm. that is important. Yeah, that is an important part. I going. I, it's one of my pet peeves about uh, medical education is that we don't have enough of us actually admitting when we don't know and that, and that it's okay mm-hmm. at first. But what's more important is that you have a, a system, systematic and um, practical way of finding out. And sometimes you may never find out and that is also okay. And I don't think we talk about that enough in medicine. Going back to what pimping was, if you answered a pimping question someone asked you in rounds, uh, you mm-hmm. know, what, what receptor does that work for? And you're like, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, how would you be received? How would a, an intern or how would a medical student, an intern or anyone be received in that setting? It's almost never with, uh, with, it's almost always with some level of shame. If yeah. You know. I, I, so, and I ask questions all the time mm-hmm. on rounds. Um, and there's always a pause and at the beginning of those pauses, I always just say, it's okay to say, I don't know. Um, and, and, and the thing is, is that I, after a while, I tell people, just say, I don't know faster. Like, because we have like, you know, 10 more patients to see. <laughs> yeah. and, and then, and the reason is, is because if they don't know, if I know the answer, I'll explain it. Right. I'll explain it. And I'll, and, and then after that, the whole point is, is that we've all learned something and then we move on. And that's the important thing to me because it's, it's uh, saying you don't know is a powerful thing. And I think there's, there's ego in medicine as we all know. Yeah. And, um, and you know, you're supposed to know everything, but, um, and I, and I really do want to know everything. Uh, it's one of the, it's a, it's a thing that I, I always strive to do. And, uh, and people would definitely say that I'm, I'm like a nerd or a know-it-all or, you know, or things like that. And I have, I'm full of random facts and random right, information. Right, right. 
But overall, like, you know, I think like saying I don't know is so important. And, and that's the whole point because, you know, trainees are in training and it's okay for them not to know the answer to things. And, I, and then after that, I'll explain it. And then, and then we move forward. And that's, and that's the thing because to, to not ask questions at all doesn't make any sense because you have to like assess people and, you know, challenge them. But like I, I, the questions that I ask people are always, you know, practical and, uh, you know, re- you know, you know, in relation to clinical medicine, mm-hmm. they're not like, like you said, like what receptor does this right. like work on? Right. Um, um, every once in a while I'll ask like a question uh, and I'll, I'll openly say, this has nothing to do with anything. Does anyone know the answer to this? And then I'll just be like, it's this like, but, and then I'll say not important at all. Right. Cause to me, it's just like, I don't like, you know, teaching facts is one thing. Right. But like the whole point of medical education is not to teach facts aside from when you're teaching medical students, but when you're teaching trainees, it, the whole goal is to kind of teach how to be a doctor. And I think that we've kind of, we're, we're kind of moving away from that in some respects. Like, uh, and I, I don't know why. I, uh, there's definitely a culture shift. There, uh, there's, there's an argument to be made that education needs to, education as a whole, mm-hmm. not even just medical education, but mm-hmm. education as a whole needs to be reformatted in, for an age that where data and information is readily available. Like, so to, 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 to be testing on things that you can easily look up, mm-hmm. I don't think is a... Is a is going to be that useful or that practical in the real world anymore, mm-hmm. right? I think what should be more important is critical thinking. Like going back to what you were yeah. saying, we, we should be teaching people to think critically mm-hmm. and to to receive information, analyze it, and come come up with um, good conclusions or come up with conclusions that at least shows that they've they've thought about this in a meaningful way. And I th- and I think that should apply to education at large let alone medical education yeah let alone uh, in training because in training like you said you, you, being a good doctor has much more to do with how you're processing your the information that your patients are pro- uh, providing you mm-hmm. than how what you read in a book um going back to how different how patients present to the textbook yeah well i, I think that's the toughest part because you know, you start medical school mm-hmm. and you take tests and then after that you take your board exams and there's always one correct answer for all of those things. Right, 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 right. And then after that you get to real life and there's not always one correct answer. That's right. There's definitely times when like the answer is nebulous and you're not absolutely sure and you kind of have to like pick, you have to like, you know, pick a side in some respects. And then there are some times where, you know, you don't even know why things are happening the way they're happening and you have to make like educated guesses. And I think that's the main reason why I want to like, you know, teach people, you know, like how to think critically because like the patients are not how they present in the book. Right. They really aren't. There's a, there are two sayings that I really like. Um, I had attendings that would say this when I was in residency. So there's, you know, Occam's razor. Yeah. Right. The simplest answer is, often the most the correct one yeah is the next I, one murphy's law like <laughs> no the next one is uh uh was it hictum's dictum hictum's dictum yeah H- you ever heard of this i feel like i've heard it but i do not remember what so it's it, it's a it's a it's the antagonist or the antithesis to occam's razor in a medical setting in a mm-hmm. medical um um framework so and occam's razor being is the way we're taught so mm-hmm. like you said 
the answer is A, B, C, like one of one of A, B, C. So the simplest answer mm-hmm. is often the correct one. Hickam's dictum is basically that the patient has has a right to as many diseases as they damn well please. Yes, I have heard. Have this. you heard yeah. of this? Yeah, because it's possible to have two issues. Yeah, right? it's, have, it's possible yeah. to have all the issues. Yeah. So where there, you don't always have to find the one unifying. There's there, there's rarely ever the unifying diagnosis. Mm-hmm. The patient probably has a multitude of problems contributing to their presentation. Yeah. And I think um, the way we're tested in medicine doesn't reflect that. Mm-hmm. Doesn't reflect the way reality and how practical application of medical knowledge actually manifests itself from how the patients are presenting. Yeah, I, I definitely see that. And it and it's just interesting because I I don't know whether or whether or not, like, I, I definitely don't discuss this with my other faculty members. Mm-hmm. But I think part of the reason is, is because when I am when I am on rounds, there's no one to listen to me and to like integrate me, right? Like yeah. obviously the the trainees do that, obviously, like because there's lots of like you know feedback feedback that mm-hmm. happens, right? And so like I give feedback to and like I also do written feedback to mm-hmm. our fellows and mm-hmm. things like that, and they also do that for me. But like in the whole scheme of things, like you know, it's just interesting because I'm sure everyone has a different teaching style, mm-hmm. and um and I and I wonder sometimes whether you know I'm doing the right things or not. I definitely um I definitely could be less sarcastic. (laughs) I know that for sure. And I definitely have a tendency. I've been thinking about this a lot to like, you know, to kind of like rush things a little bit and I'll, and I'll cut like, uh, residents and fellows off during their presentation and ask them questions or try to make them get to the point. And I'm trying to be better about that. I really am. I I think one of the, the, the other things in medicine is, and we kind of were alluding to this before there's, there's ego in medicine Mm -hmm. and, um, it's, it's best always to kind of check yourself and to like think and to check your, your, your ego and your, and your privilege in some respects, right. To make sure that, you know, you could be better because mm-hmm. you can always be better. That's true. You can. And the, once you start thinking that you can't be better, that's, that's a, that's a dangerous thing. Yeah, absolutely. So what's next for you? Um, I always like to ask my patient, my, I said patient. <laughs> <laughs> I always like to ask my guests, what's next? What's next? Oh, um, I don't know. So um, where, where do you see yourself in a year? five years, 10 years. Um, how, well, where, 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 are you, are you going to go up the academic ladder or where, where that, you, you know, these are, these are very, very like, you know, I'm having a panic attack right now <laughs> with these questions. Just, you know, just uh, come up, come up for air. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess. Uh, um, I, you know, honestly, those, those, are, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, I wonder sometimes because in academia, like there's, there's obviously like tracks that you go through, you know, mm-hmm. there's medical education, there's kind of administrative mm-hmm. and then there's like research oriented. Um, and so, uh, Jerry, you know, who was one of my colleagues that was just on this podcast and, you know, he is a researcher mm-hmm. and his research is just so interesting. Mm-hmm. I am not a researcher. <laughs> I, I, I want to, you know, do more research related things, but I, I don't know. It's not, this is not like the thing that I, that I am in academic medicine for. And, um, and so, you know, and, and so, you know, I'm left with these kind of other two tracks and, um, administrative roles always are there. Um, it's, uh, one of, one of my bosses, um, you know, does, uh, is like ICU director now. And now he's director of all of the like ICUs at university medical center. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I've thought about, you know, perhaps, you know, entering that kind of role 
Um, but it's, you know, I, I don't know. It's definitely more of a logistics kind of thing. And, you know, you're in charge of a lot of people and you kind of like are making like things work. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm not saying I'd be ill suited to that, but a lot of times with that kind of job, it's, that's a timing job, right? There has to be an opening in that's some true. respects, that's right? True. That's and true. someone's been director for years and that's it. And then, and obviously that last track that we're talking about is, you know, medical education. Mm -hmm. And there's always like space in medical education. Um, and I, I think I need to actually focus more on that. You know, you know, as a academic physician for the first few years, I definitely was doing a little bit more like private stuff because the job opening that existed at Tulane at the time was um, like a pr half private, half academic job. Gotcha, gotcha. And now I'm transitioning more to like just academics, although I'm still doing some of that private work for Tulane. And, um, and it's great because that means that like I'm working a lot more with fellows and residents mm -hmm. and, and medical students. And um, I know one of our, my bosses, our old program director, or um, Dr. Palomino, has really been like suggesting that I start like an ultrasound curriculum. That would be awesome. And that is, and that is something that I'm interested in doing because I do love ultrasound and I think it'd be a great thing to teach. There are some courses that you can take through um, through chest and mm -hmm. through uh, other kind of like, you know, like big, uh, like, you know, groups. And um, I'm, I'm going to eventually probably take that and then start um, some sort of ultrasound curriculum. And, you know, I, I guess the question is, is that who would it be kind of tailored to? Because right. that's the other thing in medicine, right? You can teach to medical students and medical, and then you can teach to like interns and then you can teach complex things to like, you know, to fellows because the one subject has like, you know, like so many different layers, way, layers yeah, to it, right? Yeah. Like, like, like for example, take like a ventilator. You mm -hmm. can teach like a very simplistic thing about a ventilator to people. And then you can go into like very, very, very complex, like ventilation modes to like fellows. But like, right. if you tried to teach that to a medical student, it would just be kind of like lost on them. Right. And so there's, there's kind of like, you know, uh, a trajectory there too. And I'm not exactly sure, you know, what that curriculum, who that curriculum would be like targeted to, but I would guess it would be to our fellows first. Why, why do you think, and I think I know the answer to this, but why do you think you are more academically inclined versus private medicine and private medicine being non-academic medicine, um, community medicine, et cetera, et cetera? I don't know, actually. I, I feel like um, one of the things that draws me to academics is that desire to constantly like know more. Um, and mm. I think that that is the one, one of the main reasons why I kind of remain in academia at this point. Because you're on the forefront of um, access to that. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. And it I, kind of forces you to stay on that forefront. Yeah, it forces me to stay kind of like um, up to date and engaged. And I enjoy that. Um, I will say, you know, I, I, I really, really, really wonder kind of like what you do in mm -hmm. that respect. Because if, you know, because I think I've said this before, when you've, you know, entered, when you finished your training, you feel like the smartest that you that you've ever been because you've taken your board exams. That's a fact. And then after that, everything after that is all self-directed learning. Right, right, right. And I really wonder sometimes how you do it, like because it's tough. It's really tough. It is, I, and and the the best way I've found for me is um, it's actually patient directed. Mm -hmm. So by that I mean as I get as my patients come in either in clinic or by uh, consult mm -hmm. on the floors or by consult or evaluation in the in the ICU, as things come in, I either say, "Oh, let me just let me just look this over again to see if if, if mm -hmm. I'm still on the up and up of, yeah. of evidence based medicine, or this is new. I've, I haven't heard of 
I haven't heard of this before. Let me let me read up on this. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really what's been directing it. And then I had a, a an attending of mine, um, Dr. Gupta. He was my second guest on the podcast. Mm-hmm. He would always randomly he would just he would randomly just ask, um, like in in the middle of like our morning report. So what was what was on the what was on this morning's uh, uh, New England Journal of Medicine? Like he oh, just okay. and whoever would get it right um, would you know get bragging rights essentially. Mm-hmm. And so what he was doing in that in that kind of setting was to kind of keep us engaged in looking these things up and you know staying abreast yeah. to what's going on in, in in New England Journal of Medicine or any of the of the of the academic journals that come out for us. So mm-hmm. for me obviously that's chest, New England Journal of Medicine. Um I'm a huge Twitter. I love to X as it is now. Yes. So I'm on that um I'm, I have a, a a profile on there and I follow a lot of uh of accounts that mm-hmm. publish new things and I get to engage with the authors of these yeah. of these uh articles whenever they come out. So that's kind of how I keep up with my stuff. Mm-hmm. Um uh medical education on social media is becoming a thing right now. And oh, it's I'm aware. something yeah, yeah, and I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. There's a whole movement uh free open access medicine foam, yeah. foam yeah. and I love that, right? So the access to to things that were behind paywalls is slowly being stripped away, and I think that is fantastic. I like that idea. Yeah. So uh, that's how I, that's how I keep up. Is you know essentially every day that you know I, I check Twitter, I check my New England Journal of Medicine, um, up to date for pulmonary critical care has a um, newest in pulmonary yeah, yeah. critical like care. Yeah, like what's new in what's critical new, care? Exactly. Yeah. I've clicked new, on that and exactly. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. I've never seen this. Before. So I click yeah. that and you know and you know I, I do that maybe once a week. I just what's new in, in and I don't click everything. Like, yeah. You know whatever you know um, um, I think will be relevant. Like you said, relevant to my practice. Um, you know the one thing that I I will say and I and this is this is just me personally, and I, I we've had this discussion before years ago. Yeah. Because of certain people that we know that are very big on Twitter or big into Twitter. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and I think the bigger problem sometimes with free open access medic free open access like medicine, medicine mm-hmm. is that people sometimes and I'm trying to word this diplomatically are not there for the education. They're there for the ego? No, well yeah, they they're there to kind of like to increase their, you know, their star, right? Mm. They want to, you know, and I don't know. We had a we had a, a a colleague, not a colleague, but a you know someone that we worked under that wanted everyone to open Twitter accounts, right? And to tw- uh, tweet at uh, you know various like big you know big people in the world of pulmonary critical care medicine, you know when they discuss things or they post an article to kind of like and that would kind of create more of a buzz for mm-hmm, Tulane. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah, yeah. I categorically refuse to have a Twitter account for this purpose. Because and you still don't have one? I still don't have one. <laughs> and and that was the problem because I I wonder sometimes whether, you know, Twitter and all these other things, like, because now I've heard that phrase medfluencer. Like, um, yeah, 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 and, yeah. and I wonder sometimes whether there's a better way of doing it. Like, you know, because obviously it's one of those situations where I'm not, right, not right. sure. That's fine. Hold on. Oh, <laughs> but yeah, but you're the you're the boss. You got to order. I know, you know. I know. I know. If anything, I feel like we should just keep this in because it's like that's very like accurate to like yeah, that's felt, a, like the experience, right? That's like real life. someone's trying to call you. Yeah, <laughs> just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man. Um, I'm, I'm gonna just say it. Like mm-hmm. I, I just I just got I just got called. I'm on call. Yeah, and you know, and it's I, I still remember I there was this jazz show when I was a first year fellow, and I I was and I was you know and that was still home call at the time. Mm-hmm. 
And I remember being stuck in the hospital because of some emergency or another. And I remember saying to the residents, call me for anything, but I'm going to this date. I'm going on this date. <laughs> like just, and like, you know, and I remember I showed up late to it in scrubs and like I snuck to the back and, uh, and like the best part to is, the date. yeah, like just, and then after that, like I did get texted for it and I had to pull my phone out and just like, and it wasn't an emergency, right, right, but right. after, and then, you know, and then after that, after that, I went straight back to the hospital <laughs> just, because I wasn't, I didn't have to be there, but, and then we had some new admits and I. And I went back just to see what was going on. The constant struggle. Yeah, it's definitely it's yeah. definitely hard. Life, like life beckons and, yeah. and the hospital beckons. You know, the crazy part was, was that at that concert, I saw Lammy. <laughs> yeah. The Lammy? Yeah, like uh, one of, yeah, the yeah, pulmonary yeah. retention yeah. doctor. And he just looked at me because I'm like, there I am, like in scrubs, like just like just <laughs> trying to sneak back this stairway, a uh, stairwell, like, you know, and it or like up, uh, you know, up to the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he's just like, is that, is that Raul? <laughs> just, like, just, you could clearly tell that he's just like. Did he come from work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we were uh, we were talking about free open access medicine yes. and and how it um or, or med influencers. Yeah, med influencers yeah, or something med like that. I, I've heard that phrase, med influencer, mm -hmm. and and it and it, it kind of just scares me because I see a lot of like you know a lot of these people that are posting now, and I and I just wonder what their message is. You know, like why exactly and. And whether, and like, again, whether it's to advance like things in medicine or whether, or, or whether it is to teach or whether it is to kind of advance themselves. Right. Like, and I, and I don't know the answer to that. I have a, and like, and I think some of them like, um, use comedy in, in ways that, that really kind of is punching down, like in some respects. That's cringe. Yeah. Well, there, there is a, there's a medfluencer that I'm thinking of right now, um, who, whose name I won't mention, but he definitely does a lot of like these like, you know, skits and things like that. And, um, and I think it's funny because he's a, a specialty surgeon that, you know, makes fun of all these other internal medicine fields when he's never experienced any of them. Right, right, right. And he doesn't realize the amount of work that goes into it because he is a specialty surgeon that doesn't get called for emergencies, that doesn't have to do the amount of scut work that we do. And it's kind of, and it kind of just annoys me. And, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I'll say this up front, that guy is going to be the keynote speaker at like uh, the, you know, whichever the neurosurgical conference is this year. Right, right, right. Like, right, um, right. and it's kind of insane because like he's going to get some honoraria and get paid. I don't even know how much. And it's funny because he's not a neurosurgeon. Right. Like just he's, he's a, a different specialty surgeon. And like, and he's going to talk at a conference for neurosurgeons, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. Do like, you do you um because someone could make the argument that that's what I'm doing with my podcast. Yeah, um, I don't I don't want to make that argument. <laughs> like just, uh, and I'm on this too, like you yeah, know. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I think the 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 thing is is that like I I don't know what your end goals are. I think um and I think that there's two separate things here. It's mm -hmm. just like do you do you want to be a medfluencer for the purposes of educating? Or do you want to be a med, like, you know, and like, so if you start getting involved in like discussing papers in, or mm -hmm. like, or like, you know, or putting your, you know, like putting your voice behind some sort of academic movement or medical movement or political movement, that's one thing. And then after that, you're just here talking to people, mm -hmm. right. And about asking them about what they bring to the table for medicine. And I, and I kind of like that in that respect. Yeah. Um, that, and I feel like there's two different things here. Right. Like, that, that is my, that is my purpose is to kind of, um, add some depth to to the titles in medicine, right? So, yeah. like to give to give some personality to the to the to the to the names behind the MDs, the RNs, the mm -hmm. you know all the all the PhDs, whatever the names behind the people that work in medicine, the mm -hmm. stories behind them. That's kind of why I yeah I wanted to 
mm-hmm. to do this. And that's kind of, that's the reason I'm doing it. Yeah. Um, I always joke that, you know, the viewership, I, I can't, I know it's, I know it's, I know my mom's watching, you know, I know, <laughs> I know my, I know my friends are watching, but, mm-hmm. but the, you know, and some colleagues and, 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 and things like that. So, uh, it's the, the reception has been really cool too. Like I've gotten some really cool feedback and I'm, I'm, I'm excited for it. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure that the podcast is going to evolve. Um, yeah, and as like it's going to change. Yeah. yeah. And I do want to expand into being much more of a, like a public space educator, um, mm-hmm. for medicine. Right. I'd love to do something like that. You're talking about like papers, like if things come out that are really cool. Yeah. Um, talk about medicine and pop culture, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I would like to do something like that, but we'll, we'll see how that shapes out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, well, man, I appreciate you, man, coming to the show. Oh, it was great. <laughs> the show. I was no, I definitely. I mean, I was definitely a little afraid at first. Like it wasn't too bad. No, of course not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah this was awesome. Thank you so much. Very insightful as always. I appreciate it. Yeah, we gotta get you back as all like, I, and I say to most of my guests, we gotta get them back. Uh, you certainly have a lot more story to tell, and we have, definitely have a lot more to talk. We gotta get Osman on here. Oh yeah, that that's <laughs> obvious. That's our our other co fellow, the third yeah, musketeer. The I third guess. musketeer. Yeah, we'll get we'll get him on here. And um, I honestly feel like you should just put me and Osman together, so then we can check each other on our on our bullshit. That <laughs> just, would be just, hilarious. Just because, be and hilarious. then after that, we'll call you out too. <laughs> <laughs> which which was basically three years of our friendship. Yeah, no, and it was great. Like <laughs> that's uh, awesome. I think that's what I love about residency. Yeah, it's yeah, just like yeah. you meet people that you're going to end up talking to for the rest of your life, Absolutely. even if you don't live in the same place. Right. Because right. Osmond lives in Georgia now. Yeah. <laughs> They're coming to visit in a few weeks. We'll yeah, say hi. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Thank you so much, man. Thanks again. Yes, sir.